Sad to say this is our last night together in this, in this context. Uh, welcome back to week six. Uh, it has been, what a, what a joy and a privilege it has been for me to get to know you guys, spend the past six weeks with you, walk, along, walk, walk with you as we've, as we've looked at just a variety of topics uh, through the idea that life is a journey. Life really is a journey. And it's full of all kinds of ups and downs, different kinds of terrain. We've covered a variety of, of different stories from Scripture, from history. Um, and uh, it's just been wonderful. So thank you. Thank you for, for being here. Thank you for coming Wednesday nights, for taking time out of your busy schedules. Um, if you don't know this, um, if you haven't been able to come to every class or you'd like to go back and, and revisit the material we have, we're going to have all six Right now, all five lectures are on the web, and the six will be up here shortly. And, and if you don't have it, um, we have some more of these, uh, th- this outline here. And so um, most of you should have received this outline. And essentially what this is is uh, you have each week with the different books that inspired each week, and then the passages and the quotes that we, we talked about covering each week. Um, and so, Stephanie, I believe we'll have that also on the web, too, as a PDF, you want to be able to download that and access that. Um, and I would encourage you to really to consider any of these books, um, to, to, to dig deeper into the material. Uh, you know, in some respects, what I was doing in this class was curating um, a lot of really great material. And um, in some respects, this was also a, a sort of introduction, if you will, to um, some of these books, some of these ideas. And so um, I would highly recommend all of them, and I'd highly recommend uh, if there was a particular day or topic that really resonated with you, um, consider digging a little bit deeper into some of the material uh, in regards to the books that are here. Um, so we have, we've been talking about life being lived on journey. And what does that mean? What does that mean for us as Christians? And what might we expect as we travel along the way? And so we talked about in the first week how God calls us like Abraham to, he calls us out of, not just necessarily geographically like Abraham, but he calls us out of uh, the defining counterfeit spheres of our day. And for us, that is a mentality that's very similar to Abraham's. And this is that you're born, you live, and you die. And the truth of, as Thomas Cahill points out in his book, um, the gift of the Jews is that this this reality, this truth that God called Abraham out of this dominating mentality was the single most revolutionary act in human history. And what made it so revolutionary? Well, well I think it's because that we're we're submitting ourselves to true reality. We're submitting ourselves to a journey, and that ultimately is what is real. And anything that's not that is a counterfeit. And why is it real? And what is the importance of that? Um, well, that our lives have purpose and they have meaning and that they're going somewhere. And if we don't live our life in that context, in that perspective, ultimately we live in the circle of chaos. Ultimately, we, we live in the tragedy that life really isn't about anything. It's just about survival, being a spiritual tourist, and existence. But in living life on way, being called followers of the way, we have true purpose, a true journey, a true destination. The second week, we talked about how we are made as believers to be free, that God wants freedom for his people, and that freedom uh, is a difficult thing to come by. Uh, Just real quick, would we be able to turn down the volume just a hair, Stephanie? If we can't, thanks. I think it's maybe a little loud. Um, Awesome, thank you. Uh, So 
So God calls us, like the Israelites, into freedom, into liberation, but that's a very difficult thing. Why is that difficult? Because in looking at the pattern of the Exodus, we all have enslavements that we're attached to. We all have addictions, as Gerald May pointed out. And so what God will do in his grace in our lives is he'll continually call us into wilderness experiences, into challenges, discomforts, annoyances, with the purpose, with the intent of freeing us up more and more so that we become liberated to ultimately become our true self, that God wants to to make us into the image that he had in mind when he created us. But freedom is a difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing. Um, And how do we know that, that we can trust this process? What are the ways that we can count on this? Well, because of God's has said, his loving kindness as demonstrated in the song of Moses and Miriam after they parted through the Red Sea, that God is trustworthy. The third week we talked about how do we keep our hearts along the way? This is a long and rugged and often difficult journey. And so many people um, end up burnt out, cynical, frustrated. Bud and I were having this very conversation on Saturday night and how so many people can get to a place after living life in the midst of the dominating sphere of the circle, that it's just whatever. I've just sort of resigned. So many people, and I think a lot of Christians, can give into resignation. And so two crucial ways that the Scripture offers us to keep our hearts alive and full of vitality is through a proper understanding of beauty and home, that we can't help but long for an ultimate home, that we seek it. It's inherent in who we are as human beings. But that what David understood in one of the most difficult seasons of his life, living as a fugitive, is that home, true home, is ultimately found in God, that we have to continually go to God and look to God and find our hearts rest in God. We also have to have a proper understanding of beauty. And let's face it, the world gets this totally messed up. Um, But scripture gives us those resources to know that beauty, as Barbara Nicolosi defined through the Thomas Aquinas quote, is both radiant, it's whole, and it's harmonious. And that we seek that, we look for that, and that if we look at God as, as the most beautiful being in the universe, that our hearts will be rested and free more and more. Week four, we looked at how much of life is lived in the valleys and the deserts, where we live a lot of monotonous details. There's a lot of ordinary or seemingly ordinary aspects to our waking lives, but God in his grace is utilizing all of that because he wants to make us great, and he'll use many seasons, many desert seasons and valley seasons, seasons where we feel like we're unapplauded, unappreciated, unseen, He'll use that to make us great. Why? Because his definition of greatness, if you recall, is a submitted heart to God. That's what it means to be great. We had a conversation just um, a moment ago during dinner, and we were talking about, you know, what's so beautiful about looking at our life in, in the context of a journey, that there are different features, is that it gives us the eyes to see other people and where they may be coming from. So if someone is in a hidden season, it may not necessarily be as a result of fill in the blank. Rather, it may be God in his grace preparing them for a further greatness. Why? Because most people don't handle power well. Most people abuse and misuse power. And God wants to have in us a strength, a fortitude, a character. So when we we do receive that power, we steward it well, that we were made to be kings and queens of the earth. Last week, we talked about the delicate truths of walking through the darkness, both in the dark night of the soul a concept where St. John of the Cross uh, and Teresa of Avila looked at and and wanted to give language to those experiences of life where God feels perhaps distant or that he's removed. And so we walked through some of those stages. Um, And I would really really, 
uh, recommend looking at some of the material and digging deeper because it was just sort of an introduction, if you will. We also talked about grieving and how crucial it is that we understand how to grieve and, and, and that grief is, is a real part of our existence. Stephanie and I tonight were just talking about, before class began, some of the loved ones in our lives that have passed and, and, and those that will inevitably pass in the future and that unless we learn how to, unless we cultivate through the resources of, of Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, through community, unless we grieve well, we'll be ruined as human beings. We'll become bitter, cold, hard, cynical, distant, resigned. Tonight, we come to the end of our journey. Um, and as you saw with these characters, they finally made it to Santiago Compostela in this beautiful, magnificent cathedral um, where this is, the, this is the place that they've been longing to, to come to. This is the experience that they've, they've been longing for this entire journey. And when they arrived, they're, they're overwhelmed and they're overcome by the sense of wonder, of mystery, of beauty. There's something transcendent that's happening to each of them in this place, something where healing is beginning to take place. And you can see that, those palpable expressions on all of their faces. Um, they've arrived, and it is a good thing. It is a good thing. Uh, tonight, we're, we're really going to talk about, I think, if there's anything I want you to remember about this class, it's what we talk about tonight. And the reason for this is because um, I think that, that we're, what we're going to look at is really the deepest heart of our existence, the deepest heart of reality. And it's something that really gets to the center of our fight in our life. This is the fight of our life, what we're going to talk about tonight. This is the core struggle at the heart of the universe is who gets ownership of this truth? Does God or does Satan? Does the circle or does the journey? Um, and so if there's, if there's anything that I've said tonight, I, I, I really do believe that what we'll talk about I think could be the most life-changing thing for all of us. If, we will, if we'll continually look at this reality, if we'll continually go back to this, out of everything we've talked about, everything we've explored, I think that this was the heart of Christ's ministry. I think this was what enabled him to do what he did, and I think it's the heart and the foundation of our very universe. And so I'd like to start with talking about Disneyland. Because uh, Disneyland, as we've come to many of us know, this has become a primary, this has become ubiquitous for so many kids' experiences, uh, maybe even now around the world, as part of their childhood. I mean, I think it's tough to find someone who's not familiar with, who doesn't know about, and maybe even has, has made a trip or knows someone who's made a trip to Disneyland. It has, it has defined... Uh, in many respects, some aspects of childhood. And I've, I've gotten the privilege of, of going to Disneyland twice this past year. It's just been sort of one of those unusual things because I have a brother that proposed his fiance in Disneyland, so that was a surprise for her and, and having all the family there. And then about a year, about last summer, we went as a family, um, and it had been a decade since, I, since we'd been there. And, and spending time at Disneyland, you know, I... I I couldn't help but, but think, why, why are, what is it about this place? Like, why do people get so excited? And, and talking with Daniel's daughter, Kara, she just lit up last week and, and saying that she went on every ride, even though she didn't necessarily go on every ride. <laughs> what, what is there? What is it that makes a child full of wonder and an adult that comes back and you see that maybe a seasoned salesperson after 50 years uh, talking about my dad just, just completely lit up? What, what is happening 
what is happening when people go to Disneyland? Well, I, I think, I think, and, and I think what, what this can do, because in, in, in looking at Santiago Compostela and maybe trying to make a connection to that and, and what's the experience of transcendence there, I think that Disneyland may, may meet us a little closer to reality because I'm assuming maybe a good deal of us have been there. Disneyland, being called the happiest place on earth, I think is a mirror and a reflection of the ultimate kingdom. The ultimate kingdom, if you will, where when people come, they encounter diversity and they encounter a variety of different adventurous experiences. They encounter stories, fairy tales, stories of transformation. And they get a sort of vicariously experience that there's wonder, there's magic, there's mystery, there's a sense of being alive, there's great food on every corner. I think this taps into the ultimate truth that as pilgrims walking the way, our destination, our origin started in a garden, but our, our, our end destination is to arrive in the great city of God. And that Disneyland is a, but a small picture, if you will, of what awaits us. That when we see the fireworks at night at a place like Disneyland and you see children light up and they see those characters that, they, that, that have been beloved, that have experienced transformation, well, one day, and forgive me if this is becoming a corny analogy, but one day... We too, we too will experience and see transformation in all of us. We too will be a character who's undergone transformation. And that is really, that is really the, the reason why we're on this journey in the first place, is to undergo and experience a needed renovation and a needed transformation. So how do we live in that, though, right? I mean, I, I was sad as a kid. I cried as a kid when we left Disneyland. I was 11, and I nearly cried a year ago when I left Disneyland. And, and I come back to my life, and it's, you know, bills and working and filling up the car with gas, and, and maybe I need to listen to Lecture 4 again. But how, how, do we live, how do we live in a sense where our lives, our lives look ahead, that our end destination is this great city of God full of wonder and magic and healing and restoration and beauty, and the evidence of transformation, how does that become more real to us every day? So it's not just, because I know for me, when I think about entering into the great city of God, it can feel like making a trip down to South America. Yeah, it might happen eventually. Well, I think it could happen, and that's just exotic and distant, but where does that become real in my waking life? I want to start with a couple stories that I think help introduce us to the way that we get there, the way that we get there every day when we decide, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to take the steps out of the circle of chaos. And I'm going to follow you onto this journey, whether it's through a valley, a place of death, whether we experience rest, uh, or going through the rugged difficulty of being pulled out of another enslavement. Um, one story is, is, is the story of a, of a uh, of a young man who, when he was uh, in his 20s, he was fighting in Iraq. And uh, he spent his time uh, during the Iraqi war volunteering at an orphanage shelter. And he grew to befriend uh, a young boy in this orphanage shelter. And uh, they had, they had a, a kind of bond, as, as you know, an older mentor would have with a younger mentor, um, sort of big brother, little brother dynamic. But he eventually came to a place where he was compelled to adopt this young boy. And so because of his position back in the United States and because of the different spheres of influence that he worked in, he was able to get this young boy out of the green zone. This boy, by the way, was a paraplegic. He was able to get this boy out of the green zone, and he raised him as, as his own, as his son. 
And, and I'll never forget some of the stories that, that this, uh, this really brave and admirable sh- the soldier shared with me. And he talked about, you know, um, my son has lived with me for most of his life, and he knows that I'm his father. But there are still evidences of his being an orphan that exist today. There are still evidences of that. Everything from when he hears thunder in summertime, he gets scared because he thinks that there are bombs that are going to descend on the house, like he was back in the orphanage in the green zone. But I'll never forget this. He talked about how, you know, we'll go out to eat or someone will come over to the house. And my son, uh, even though he's got a plate of food, he'll reach over and try to grab someone else's food because he grew up in an orphanage and it was about survival. There wasn't always a lot of food. And this dad said to me, he's, he said, you know, I, I have to continually tell him, um, listen, you're my son and there will always be enough for you. I will always care for you. I will always provide for you. But moving him out of a mentality where he was an orphan to being a son was very, very difficult. Another story, I think of the story of Heidi and Roland Baker, and they began a ministry in in Africa in in the early 90s. And at the time, they were living in London, and they were looking for, in the early 90s, what was the most destitute and desperate place on the planet. And Time Magazine had wrote an article on Mozambique, and they said, essentially, this is the worst place on the planet. And they said, that's where we want to go. That's what we feel called to do, is to go to the worst places on earth. So we're going to go to Mozambique, and they did. And they started an orphanage, and several decades later, it's a flourishing environment where kids come out of very traumatic and difficult experiences, uh, and they're, they're fathered, they're mothered by Heidi and Roland and other people who live and work at this orphanage. And Heidi talks about how um, they have, this, they have this, this get-together every Sunday night, and they call it their Holy Chaos Night, where they invite kids over to the house, and the kids are basically can do whatever the heck they want. If they want to grab Cokes out of the fridge, they can do that. If they want to you know, mess around with a dog and tease and torment the dog, they're free to do that. And Heidi said, it's really interesting. You can tell, she says, the difference between a child that believes that they're now a son or a daughter versus a child that still believes that they're an orphan. Because the ones that believe that they're children of Heidi and Roland, they feel free to make you know, prank phone calls and call the house down the street, put their feet up on the couch, mess around with a dog, grab a couple Cokes out of the refrigerator. But the ones that don't are very reserved and untrusting and kind of slink back. So this, I think, segues us into this truth, is that all of us, all of us to varying degree, struggle and live within an orphan mindset and an orphan mentality. Some of you that have adopted, uh, this probably can hit, this is going to hit a lot closer to home because you see that as a palpable reality. But regardless of that, there are places within each of us that are orphaned. There are places within each of us where we don't fully believe that there is a father who cares for us and that we are being fathered in this journey. Well, how did the ultimate pilgrim, how did the true pilgrim, Christ, how was is, how is he able to, to walk the journey perfectly? And as our guide, and as he walks us through these different spheres and these different seasons, what was it, what, what was it gave him the ultimate power? I believe, uh, as we find uh, in Matthew... I've not been doing my PowerPoint. Uh, I think we find that uh, at the beginning of his ministry. So I'm looking here in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. So this is, this is, um, this is Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist before he goes into the desert for 40 days, before he, f- he goes toe-to-toe with, with the tempter, with Satan. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Why did God do this? What was happening here? And, and why is this included? And what's the relevance? And why, why was this so crucial? Well, I'd like to begin by pointing out that this, was, this began, this pronouncement of benediction of blessing from the Father to the Son happened before Jesus did anything in his ministry. This happened before he went into the desert to face the tempter. Uh, it happened before he would develop relationships with the disciples and ultimately go to the cross. So what did, what did God know? What did the Son know? What did they understand? Um, and to help us, I'd like to talk from what's become one of the most life-changing books I've ever, I've ever run across, Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen, uh, at the time, the, sometime after this book was written, was working um, as, a, uh, as a professor at the Yale Divinity School. And he was interviewed by a journalist uh, by the name of Fred, who was living in Manhattan, and he visited Henry and, and Henry could tell in this interaction as, as the journalist was interviewing him, as Fred was interviewing him, that Fred just was not there. He was doing his job because he had to, uh, but it was like, you know what, I have to kind of pretend to care about you, but I really, I really don't care about you. And, and Henry saw that, and he called it out on him because Henry saw what he would say is there was something alive beneath that mask. There was something alive beneath the shell, and I was really curious to kind of find out what was there. And so... So Henry asked him, he said, so what is it ultimately, Fred, that you want to do? And Fred, Fred was like, why are you asking? And friendly, you know, or, or Henry, yeah, friendly, <laughs> Henry, Henry didn't relent. He said, I, I'm just really curious. You just don't seem like you're into this. And he goes, well, you know, I, I really wanted to be a writer. And so, Hen and so Henry kept pushing in on that. Like, why haven't you done that? Are you going to do that? And, and Fred was like, what are you after here? Like, what, what, why, are you, why are you after this so much? And, and Henry said, listen, this is what I'm going to do for you. Come back tomorrow, and we'll make it happen so you can quit your job and write for a year. You can, you can work at the Divinity School. Uh, now, Fred uh, was, a, was a secular Jew, and, and Henry, in trying to convince him, said, it would be great if we had someone from another faith, another faith tradition, to be here. We could, we could sort of, we could glean from you. And, and so Fred agreed, right? That's a pretty sweet deal. Fred agreed, and he spent the next year, he didn't, he didn't finish his novel, but what happened was the two of them developed a really great friendship. They were really open and honest and Fred uh, eventually came to Henry, and he said, you know, what I, what I really need you to do, what I really want you to do is I want you to communicate. Um, I want you to communicate to, to the world, to, to a secular man or secular woman who's not comfortable with Christianity or Judaism, who's not comfortable with the Bible. I want you to speak into the deepest need of the human heart. You, you've got something to say, so say it to us. Say it to my friends. Say it to the ambitious professionals who spend every you know, waking hour and, and worrying about bills and, and having to work under intense deadlines. Say it to us. And so Henry, Henry and like in some of his other writings, didn't really want to touch the subject. It was just, it made him uncomfortable, like he was revealing a part of himself that made him feel vulnerable, but eventually he did, and it became the life of the beloved. And so... 
Henry opens his book by saying this, that becoming the beloved is the great spiritual journey we have to make, that the key to understanding your existence is found in knowing whether or not you're the beloved. Now, Henry is very real and transparent in his own struggle with this. (sighs) Oh, that was what Fred said. Henry said this, Yes, there is that voice, the voice that speaks from above and from within and that whispers softly or declares loudly, You are my beloved, on you my favor rests. It certainly is not easy to hear that voice in a world filled with voices that shout, You are no good, you are ugly, you are worthless, you are despicable, you are nobody unless you can demonstrate the opposite. What Henry understood, what Henry talks about in this book, Life of the Beloved, is that each of us, are desperately seeking the blessing. And that truth is, begins from, from page one of Scripture until the very end, that this earth and humanity was created out of blessing. Blessing being a benediction, the pronouncement of something good from an outside source. So when God spoke creation to existence, he didn't just say, let there be light. Ultimately, he pronounced it as good. And even when, when man, when male was created as alone, he saw that as being not good. And then he created a helpmate. He created community. And he pronounced that as good, that, in, that the, the, the ultimate benevolent outside person in the universe pronounced goodness after he made something. We see the problem that blessing created in the Old Testament. You look at stories like um, Jacob and Esau, and the struggle for the blessing, the struggle for pronouncement that you are worthy, that you are good, that you are adored, that you are prized, and that this truth is found throughout the pages of Scripture. And so when we come to the beginning of Christ's ministry, we have the Father saying again, you are well, you are good, on you, you are beloved, you are my chosen. And this need for the blessing uh, is, is, is a truth that we all pursue in a variety of different ways. We look for the blessing in work. If, if I finally get the acclaim that I'm seeking for in my job, if I finally get that promotion, if I finally have this person uh, who I've been working with say, you've done such a great job, we look for it in relationship. If this person would finally love me, uh, if this person would tell me just how wonderful I am. We look for it in friendship. If they would just say again and, and just say again how, how, how terrific I am, what a, what a great person I am. We, we're, we're, so, we're so desperate for the blessing and we look for it in such a variety of ways. And what Henry said is, until you understand that the ultimate blessing you need is from God and a continual benediction of, you are my son, you are my daughter, on you I am well pleased you will inevitably look for that in someone or something else. We can't escape it. It's a core of our existence. We were created out of blessing. We were made for blessing, and we were made to give blessing. You see how when Abraham was called out of Ur, he was called to become a blessing. God blessed him so he would bless others. God pronounced goodness on him so Abraham's life would pronounce goodness on others. Henry goes on to say this, I am putting this so directly and so simply because though the experience of being the beloved has never been completely absent from my life, I never claimed it as my core truth. 
I kept running around in large or small circles, always looking for someone or someone able to convince me of my belovedness. It was as if I kept refusing to hear the voice that speaks from the very depth of my being and says, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. That voice has always been there, but it seems that I was much more eager to listen to other louder voices saying, prove that you're worth something, do something, do something relevant, spectacular, powerful, and then you will earn the love you so desire. Meanwhile, the soft, gentle voice that speaks in the silence and solitude of my heart remained unheard of, or at least unconvincing. So we seek it all the time, and we seek it because if we do something, if we perform a certain way, if we act a certain way, if we do something, if we say something, if we look a certain way, sound a certain way, smell a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way, by this, we will get the blessing that we so desire. And God in his grace is saying, I give that the ultimate blessing that you need, that you are my prized son or daughter, that you are the apple of my eye. I give that to you freely, and you don't have to do anything for it. But that is the great struggle of our existence. We struggle to believe that we have to do something to receive the blessing. We have to do something to earn the blessing. Henry goes on to say this. If it is true that we are not only, not only are we beloved, but we also, uh, let me read it from here. If it is true that we are not only the beloved, but also we have to become the beloved, If it is true that we are not only children of God, but also have to become children of God. If it is true that we are not only brothers and sisters, but also have to become brothers and sisters. If all that is true, how then can we get a grip on this process of becoming? It's one thing to say, you have to believe it. Believe the blessing. Believe the benediction. Believe that each of you are the beloved. That God puts his favor on you just as he did with Christ. Believe that. And we hear that and we go, ah. How do I do that? How do I live into that? How, how does that become more real to me so that my experience of God in life isn't just about how wonderful and interesting doctrinal statements of faith are or becomes a sort of intellectual existential exercise or, or life becomes a sin management process where if I, if I don't do enough bad things this week and do enough good things this week, how do we live as children of God? How do we become who God has made us to be? Ultimately, sons and daughters of the king. This is the fullest and truest destiny of who we are. God related to Jesus as a father in that moment. Not as king. Not as judge. Although those are parts and parts of his dynamic. But as a father to son. The novelist Tom Wolfe helps us out, takes us the next step. He says this, The deepest search in life, it seemed to me, the thing that in one way or another was central to all living was man's search to find a father. Not merely the father of his flesh, not merely the father of his youth, but the image of a strength and wisdom external to his need and superior to his hunger, to which the belief and power of his own life could be united. You see, one of the great the great struggle of our life, the great lie of our life, the lie that existed from the serpent in the garden was that you're on your own, really. If, if life really is up to you to make life what it is, then, then destiny is in your hands and you're ultimately, you're on your own. That if there is no journey, if there is no great pilgrimage, uh, if life really is lived beneath the circle, then guess what? You're on your own to make, make yourself figure out life. And, and if you think about that, if you really start to dwell on the implications of that, that is a terrifying reality. Because life oftentimes 
is, is unpredictable, it's uncertain, it's scary, it's broken, it's, it's difficult. And yet, we often, we so often live as orphan children. We don't fully believe that there is a father that really takes care of us, that really shepherds and guides us through our waking days, that in each season of our life, there was someone who's true and benevolent and good. This is the lie beneath the lies that exist within our hearts every single day. Every day it's vying for God is a benevolent and good father who wants to pronounce the blessing versus he either can't be trusted, there is no father, you're on your own. George MacDonald says this, because we are the sons of God, we must become the sons of God. In John 14, 18, to 18 and 23, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. George MacDonald goes on to say this, the word used by St. Paul does not imply that God adopts children that are not his own, but rather that a second time he fathers his own, that a second time they are born, this time from above, that he will make himself tenfold, yea, infinitely their father. So did you ever think about when you were, when you were born again, right? And, and no Christian would ever dispute the fact that to know Christ, you have to be born again. You become, you become a child of God, but, but in that moment, because you're a child of God, you are now being fathered by God. You're being fathered by God and walk through all the seasons of life just as any good father would walk through the seasons of life with their son or daughter. This, is, this, is, this, this metaphor is so loaded and it's so hard for so many reasons, one of which is some of us didn't have great fathers. Maybe some of us had terrible fathers. Maybe some of us had great fathers and that's even difficult because we can look to that father and say, well, they were so good, but God isn't in the flesh. I don't see him fully in the flesh. I, I believe with all my heart, with more than anything, that God wants to redeem in each of us and to bring us into the fullness of who we were created to be, a right and ongoing understanding that he is fathering us through every season of life. I love what John Eldridge says in his book, Fathered by God. We aren't meant to figure out life on our own. God wants to father us. The truth is, he has been fathering us for a long time. We just haven't had the eyes to see it. He wants to father us much more intimately, but we have to be in a posture to receive it. What that involves is a new way of seeing, a fundamental re reorientation of how we look at life and our situation in it. And he goes on to talk about how uh, he's talking about men, but it, 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 applies. it applies. It applies to men and women is that we are unfinished men and women. There are parts in each of us that are orphan, that are longing to, to grow up, to grow into the fullness of who God has created us to be. And yes, we've talked about how day one, it's, it's leaving, it's leaving Ur. We talked about how God is liberating us like the Exodus pattern in beauty and valleys and whatnot. But if we, will, if we will look at this truth and this reality that God wants to father us, he wants to make us into sons and daughters, that we have the inheritance of the Almighty King, that truth, I believe, will liberate us more than anything we've looked at over the past number of weeks. Why? Because it hits us at the core of our existence. That's why this is so tough and tender to talk about is because of the pain and the disruption that's happened for each of us whether we've had the best father in the world or the worst father in the world. Uh, it is the core struggle of our existence. And so I think that, I believe that this is where true freedom, true healing is found as we begin to explore and have God heal us and say, God, how, how are you fathering me? How are you fathering me? 
Jesus had the heart of a son, knew himself to be the son, felt very much like a beloved son. He was always called the son of man. Isn't that interesting? Looked on God as Abba, his dear father, lived in a father-son relationship. The divine relationship, son-father, filled his human heart. Filled his human heart. It was his secret, his joy, a constant awareness, a basic attitude that determined his behavior. Look at the ways that God, that Christ related to God. It was always in that posture. He went away in, in the early morning hours to connect with that because he knew that if he didn't have that, if he didn't have that reality, he wouldn't make it. He wouldn't survive. And, and the same was true throughout the rest of his day and at the end of his day. And yet, we so often live as orphan children. I have to scramble and grasp and just get the best that I can. And I, I know that God will kind of make things happen, you know, kind of broadly speaking, like maybe this job and, and, and this sort of thing. But you think about the intimacy of a father and a son, and you think about the intimacy that, that Joseph had with Christ as he was teaching him the trade of being a carpenter. It was, it was elbow on elbow every day in the workshop working together that, that God wants to show you as a man. He wants to show you what it means to be a man. And he's going to use every element of your life and, and not only who you are as a man, but who you uniquely are, Chris and Bud and David and myself. This is, this is who I've made you as a man. I'm fathering you into this. Would you look at your life like this? Would you look at your life as being fathered from these orphan places, even from these, these places of, of immaturity? And I want to grow you up into that. And as women, God wants to father you into the woman that he's called you to be. And that as you, as you walk that out, you think, well, you know, my dad, maybe he really missed the boat on this, or I didn't have a dad, I didn't have a good dad. God is there as the ultimate protector, as the ultimate father, and he fathers us in a myriad of beautiful and wonderful ways. You look at the church, for example, right? You see how there may be gaps in our lives where, you know, whether it was, you know, I, I was just never taught how to do finances. Well, the beauty of the church is we have the opportunity to be fathered within the church, to be parented within the church in areas like that. That's the beauty of the church is that healing and restoration can happen. And then as we seek out those relationships and as we offer that to those that are behind us, we too become more of who God has uh, desired us for us to be. So this is the question I want you to leave with tonight is, God, how are you fathering me? This is the question that will war within your heart every day. And as you ask it right now, I... I'm sure maybe there's some of this, or maybe there's some of this, or maybe there's some of this, but some of this. And I think that happens every day. And, and the more that we live into that, the more that that becomes true to us, we start to become who we were made to be, sons and daughters of the king. That that is our destiny. That is our destiny. Yes, we are co-laborers. Yes, we are disciples. Yes, we are servants. Yes, we are pilgrims. But I think that those those truths pale in comparison to what it means to be a son or daughter of the king. Uh, let's face it, we, we again, we all believe the lie to varying degrees that God can't be trusted or some part of my life, whether it's relationships, work, health, finance, ministry, I got to kind of figure it out on, on my own. But God is saying, let me be the father to you. Let me be the father to you that even with the best father, there were places that he got it wrong. Or with the worst father, I can redeem all things. I can father you through this. In closing, I'd like to leave you with just a few, just a few closing thoughts. Um, the first is this. This is, 
one of my favorite pictures that I've ever taken, another, another awful poorly shot photograph. It doesn't seem like it as much, but if you were to look at it, this is like totally out of focus. And as I mentioned last week, I, I, had, I had the privilege of walking the Camino, and I only did nine days' worth. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. When we walked into the city of Santiago, I heard voices from so many different nations. I saw people from all over the world. There were parties that awaited me, celebrations, there were fireworks, and a banquet, an amazing meal at this monastery. And these were all the pilgrims that I had traveled with. We, we experienced this long, hard, difficult journey together. And I just, I got to sit at the head of the table, and it was just by, by chance, and I, and I just shouted to everyone. I said, look this way. I want to take a photograph. And everyone is, is, is sort of tired, but they feel so good, and this meal is about to be prepared. And they're happy and they're full of life. And I remember thinking, this, this is what heaven will be like. This is what it will be like when we finally come home. And, and it's something that I think we need to hold on to and live in every day because this is, this is what ultimately awaits us, is the ultimate wedding supper and party of the Lamb, that this is our ultimate existence. Um. I'd like to read from you um, the end of The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. And he talked about, you know, when we, when we get to heaven, we think about, we can think about, you know, heaven is, heaven is just white clouds and it's this ethereal existence. And, and Lewis, Lewis does such a beautiful job of, um, of painting the picture of, of what heaven really might feel and look like. Um, <laughs> I think Brene Brown would be proud of me. You guys got me in a vulnerable state right now. It's all over the place. Um, so give me just a moment here. So this is at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia trilogy, and, and C.S. Lewis talks about the, what's happening with the old Narnia and the new Narnia, that there is a transformation that's taking place. It is hard to explain how the sunlit land was different from the old Narnia, as it would be to tell you how the fruits of the country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it, of, of it you think like this. You, have, you may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out onto a lovely bay of the sea or green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room, opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like the places in the story. In a story you have never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia, you can say, the old earth and the new earth was like that. The new one was like a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was a unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forf- his, his forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia, the old earth, is, this, is sometimes looked a little like this. 
Come further up, come further in. He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run, and they found to their astonishment that they could keep up with him. Not only the dogs and the humans, but even, even little puzzle and short-legged Pog and the dwarf. The air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. I want to leave you tonight with this, this benediction. At the end of our story, when we experience the ultimate wedding feast of the Lamb, when we experience the great banquet that we so long for, then I heard what sounded like a multitude, like the roar of washing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Let me pray. Um, and as I mentioned to most of you, I think we have just a little surprise for you this evening. So if you've got to go, that's totally cool. But we just want to just celebrate a little bit before we, we call it a class. God, uh, it's just so good to come to the end of our journey. It's, it's bittersweet. Uh, it's sad in a way. Um, Lord, I pray for all the hearts here that they, they experience you more in a real way. Whatever has been said, God, um, Lord, I, I, I pray that that will fuel and enliven and guard, guard our hearts and that we become more real, we become more like you, that we live as sons and daughters. God, that we become um, true pilgrims, Father. Help us to know what that is in our lives. Um, help us to relinquish more control through the power of your Spirit knowing, God, that we can't do any of this on our own. And you don't want us to, God, that you want us to be fathered. Show us what that means. I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight. In your name, amen.